0: Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the JCN Clinic podcast show, where we are joined by Dr. Kerry Jones. Dr. Kerry Jones is an international recognized speaker, consultant and educator on the topic of women's health and hormones with over 20 years in the industry. Dr. Jones graduated from the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon, where she also completed a two-year residency in women's health, hormones and endocrinology. Later, she graduated from the Grand Canyon University's Masters of Public Health program. Dr. Jones was one of the first to become board certified through the American Board of Naturopathic Endocrinology and currently serves on the board. She was the medical director for the Dutch test for several years and is a clinical expert for the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center and Under Armour. Currently, she is the head of medical education at Rupert Health and host of the Root Cause Medicine podcast. So we are very excited to have her with us today, and we hope you enjoy the show as much as we did. Hello, and welcome to the JCN Clinic Podcast show. I'm Jessica. I'm Carissa. And today we are super excited because we are joined by Dr. Carrie Jones. And welcome. that means <laughs> we're going to be talking about her favorite favorite topic, hormones. So, welcome Carrie.
1: My gosh, thank you so much for having me. I am excited. Hormones is my favorite topic.
0: Carissa also is a little obsessed, shall we say. So, I mean, I'm Definitely, definitely a fan, but not on the level of Carissa. So I think this is going Aww. to be um, a bit of a, a bit of a love affair on the hormone front. <laughs> awesome. Let's do it. So before we dive into our questions, I would love for those who don't know you and I can't imagine who wouldn't, but can you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself before we dive in? Sure.
1: I am a naturopathic doctor here in the States. I'm board certified in naturopathic endocrinology, which means I have just that much more hormone specialization, and I have my master's in public health. And I have been, let's see, I have been in the field for 23 years, and I've been a doctor for 17 of them, and pretty much all of them have been in and around hormones and women's health. And for Almost 10 years, I was the medical director of a big hormone company called The Dutch Test. And um, I just switched this year over to a different company that now is a platform for a lot of different testing companies, which has been a lot of fun to learn more about stool testing and Lyme Mm -hmm. testing and mold and mycotoxin testing and organic acids and genetics. And so I've really gotten to expand uh, everything that I've learned by like a 10x so that I can Mm -hmm. help Educate people on it.
0: That must have been super exciting, taking all of that Dutch knowledge and just being so surrounded in that world. And then, as you said, expanding into all of those other functional tests and seeing all those connections, which I'm sure we'll dive into later. Yeah, Um, it's been a
1: lot of fun, for
0: sure. And why, I'm just curious, um, hormones in general, like as a space, do you have a particular reason why you went down this road
1: honestly when I was growing up I'm um, in the states I went I predominantly grew up in a southern state and in the south the football coach teaches sex ed or health ed <laughs> courses so you can imagine how that went wow. and therefore it's a male, not,
2: male football coach oh of course of course yeah.
1: yes most definitely <laughs> And so we didn't learn very much. And when I decided to go to medical school, I figured out pretty young that I wanted to focus on women's health, either OBGYN, women's health pediatrics, um, somewhere in that sort of family health realm. And the more I learned about hormones, gynecology, women, the more my friends and family, eventually my patients were like, I didn't know that. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that. Nobody taught me that. And so I just found it so fascinating being female myself to learn all this really cool stuff that I could use to my advantage for me to age gracefully and be healthy and figure out all the symptoms I was having um, and then apply it to friends, family and patients who were like, never learned that, had no idea that was a Mm. thing, didn't realize that wasn't normal, didn't realize that was normal. And so that's what really got me into hormones is selfish
0: reasons, but also there's just a massive lack of education out there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I was just thinking about here in Australia as far as our education in quotation marks growing up in even in a high school setting, I actually can't even remember any form of education. (laughs) Like I think I remember the classic kind of maybe one-off birds and the bee kind of a menstruation talk in one class. But how about you, Carissa? Do you remember having any Uh, education besides maybe a chat with your mom?
2: Uh, I remember the chats with my mum because she was a nurse. She was so clinical about it, which was hilarious. And she also thought she'd do us the favour of getting those books that are around in the 90s or the late 80s. Where did I come from? Yes. Uh, You know,
0: they're the little... What's happening to me? (laughs)
2: What's happening to me? Mm -hmm. So I do remember remember those books. um, And honestly, obviously took pearls out of them because, again, same thing, like I got into my 20s and dove into the hormone space once I started studying and just realised how much we weren't taught... But we also had like a, um, I can't even remember what it was, but it was like a sex education van that came around and talked ah. to you and they had like, oh gosh, I think from memory, like, I don't know, like puppets. I don't know. It was meant to obviously be something fun <laughs> and engaging, <laughs> sounding puppets. a bit weird and sexual already. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I but again, like I think it was more around sex education. And it's interesting because mm. I was listening to a podcast actually with you on this um on one of your podcasts this morning, Carrie, where you were interviewing a fertility doctor who told me about PCOS. I'm only halfway oh, through, I was listening yeah. to him on my walk, but he was saying the same thing. Like, we're just taught in school that even just like if you look at someone, you can get pregnant. So it was all around this fear mongering yeah. around, you know, having sex and if you're going to have sex and going on the pill. And that's really that was my level of education. There was nothing yeah. about the female menstrual cycle, understanding your body, ovulation, estrogen, what estrogen can and can't like can do and not do. And yeah, right. so there's definitely nothing at the level that we should be taught.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like puppets. I love it. <laughs> something okay. Like a giraffe, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, well we will dive in. We will be, as we said, talking heavily about hormones today. Specifically, I guess a lot of this will relate back to females. Um, but there will definitely be at points, I'm sure, some talk about this in relation to males. So let's start if we could ask you this well, these questions really carry and I'm sure that um, we'll definitely have more to add as we move through. But if we could start with the different types of estrogens Mm. and their metabolites because this is i guess even you know for us as clinicians something that we often just you know take take sometimes without giving regard to the general public not understanding this but it's such a crucial area to understand first and foremost
1: yeah so we use the word estrogen generically, don't we? Mm. All the time Mm. as practitioners, we just, we say estrogen and we know what we mean, Mm -hmm. but the truth is there are a lot of estrogen or estrogen type hormones. So there are three, what we would call main hormones, conveniently called E1, which is estrone, E2, which is estradiol, and E3, which is estriol. When we talk about estrogen, we're generally referring to The middle one, E2 estradiol, which is the big, most, more potent one, the stronger one. Now, when your body makes an estrogen, it uses the estrogen. And this applies to males or females. This is not specific for females. But when you use your estrogen and you're done with your estrogen, it has to get detoxified out of the body. And when it does that, it has to first become neutral because the body doesn't want it going around wreaking havoc or turning things on or turning things off. So it neutralizes it and then it makes it water soluble. When it's water soluble, now we can actually get it out of the body. We can actually through the kidneys and we can pee it out or through the intestines and go that way. So that whole process detoxification, sometimes we call it metabolism. And it's the, pr- the process of our estrogen basically getting broken down into other things. And those other things are called metabolites. So metabolism is like breaking things down what does it break down into? It breaks down into metabolites. This is really important for us to all to know because estrogen, we talk a lot about estrogen, but these metabolites, these estrogen metabolites can do a lot of good or bad as well. And the way you do or don't break down your estrogen plays a big role in your breast cancer risk. It plays a big role in fibroid and polyp development or growth. It plays a big role in PMS or how heavy your periods are or aren't, or the the symptoms that you're having. So we want our estrogen to go down what we call like a better pathway, which thankfully these pathways we can modulate with supplements, with diet, with lifestyle. And we kind of want you to steer clear of um, the less than ideal pathways because the less than ideal pathways, that's when we get into maybe more of a cancer risk, increasing our cancer risk. And so with estrogen, when we go through these different phases, there's tests that you can do. One we mentioned earlier, it's the Dutch test, but there are other tests out there. And it helps you identify these pathways. And the pathways are, are numbered, thankfully, makes it easy. So as your estrogen's getting broken down, we prefer it to go down what's called the two pathway. We don't want it to go heavily down what's called the four pathway. And so we can, again, diet lifestyle supplement to sort of encourage or push you to go down the two pathway and then once you're going down the two pathway we can then move to the next phase there's another another stage that happens which is fancy it's called methylation and then and then from there it gets pushed into the kidney or gets pushed into the intestines and so it kind of sounds a little complicated and like wow that's kind of crazy but it's what I want women to know and men too is that you're not if you're having estrogenic symptoms one there's something we can do about it we can test and see what's going on. And then two, you can literally make easy changes to fix the situation, to get you off the path um, of the symptoms that you're having onto a better path.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I, I love that summary there of the different, obviously, types of estrogens, as we collectively can sometimes refer to them knowing what what we're referring to but as you said generally the average person and the average client doesn't understand that we're actually talking about those three different forms and I I find too and I'm sure yourself Carissa with clients when you first start talking to them about estrogen and um, the options as far as potentially something even like a Dutch test and you bring up this whole concept further than just estrogen itself, but this concept of how the estrogen is metabolized and these different types of metabolites, that's that whole massive area for us that there's so much that we can do and support and we need to know that again the average person doesn't even know. Like I just I love seeing people's faces light up when you start talking to them about this in clinic because it's something that they're just like oh wow oh that sounds really amazing and interesting yes I want to know more about what my body's doing there
2: yeah I also think too like understanding your estrogen metabolism and then metabolites that are produced I think because we can as as like clinicians we can get a really amazing symptom picture we absolutely can but I know when it comes to estrogen um how someone presents or what they may have doesn't necessarily always mean they're producing X metabolite as well. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, and I know I've heard you talk about this on podcast, Carrie, and I know we talk about this a lot in the clinic. uh, We've done lives on this as well. Like supplementation for estrogen detoxification or efficient estrogen detox really does need to be tested for before certain Mm -hmm. supplements are Mm -hmm. given. And I know that there's, so much in you know the health space again just even with practitioners not understanding their different types of estrogen and and what should be done but like lots of supplements and obviously dim is the first one that comes into mind just handed out Mm. willy-nilly especially in the training industry like Mm -hmm. dim is handed out left right and center for estrogen stripping (laughs) like
0: just shows the
2: very basic level of knowledge right there but estrogen stripping for people trying to do weight training and stuff like that all clients that have come in and they're like i've got I've been seeing another practitioner, and um, I've been on DIM for the last, you know, eighteen months. And I'm like, what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm like, why are you on DIM? And they're like, oh, because I've got I've got I've got um, um, high estrogen or bad estrogen. I'm like, cool. How do you know that? And they're like, oh, like I just got told. I'm like, did you do any testing? Oh, I just did some bloods, but it didn't show much. But that's okay, like that. And I'm just like, oh my god. So, <laughs> like. <laughs> So like understanding the relevance of supplementation and what we can and can't use is, is so, you know, different, like um, dictated by our types of estrogens. And I think that's really important and where understanding estrogen Mm -hmm. at that more in depth level is really exciting. Um, Yeah. But yeah, so. So I just had a conversation. I was talking
1: with a fertility specialist and we were talking about a case where um, they couldn't, they were struggling to get pregnant and a different Doctor had put them on DIM, hundreds of milligrams of DIM. So for people who are listening, and don't know, DIM stands for diindolmethane, um, and it comes from. It's a very, very, very concentrated form um, of an uh, ingredient in, like our broccoli, our kale, our, our cauliflower uh, foods, and so they pull out this one, you know, ingredient and or create this one ingredient out of it, and then concentrate it and put it in a supplement. So it does lower estrogen. But it can really lower estrogen. So this fertility patient had been put on dim, and everything dried up. She's like, "I felt yeah. menopausal, my my um, f- 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 uh, fertile mucus went away. I'm having hot flashes, my joints hurt. I just feel, you know, tired. What's going on? And we were discussing how um, Curcin, that example of like the, they just go on dim because they're told, well, you have a lot of estrogen." I've read somewhere DIM lowers estrogen, mm-hmm. unmonitored, untested, and now this poor fertility patient can't get pregnant because they don't have the estrogen to help the body do its job in the first place. And I'm like, yes, DIM is helpful mm. in certain key areas, but you really have to mm-hmm. know, you have to test, and you have to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And DIM
2: is a really bloody effective supplement. Like when you use it, and this is what yeah. I say to my clients, it's short-term and it's retested. And it's actually like my experience, and I'd be keen to hear your experience with this as well, but my experience is once someone's used DIM, like, and I don't use it in my clients for a long period of time at all, but the effects are quite long-lasting after using it as well. If you've done all the other, like lifestyle and um, yeah. other supplement interventions alongside it, it's not something you need to be on for six to 12 months, even if you're producing a lot of these more 4-hydroxy um, metabolites. Like my experience it with using it and then retesting I always have someone off dim for a period of time before I even retest like usually another two to three period cycles and then I retest after dim supplementation but quite often like you can still see that 4 hydroxy behaving itself so I don't Mm -hmm. believe that people need to be on dim even if they do need it for a long period of time (laughs) would you how do do you agree with that do the only people that I do have it on and even then I don't use very
1: high doses and I'm very careful with testing is that you know genetically you can see um, which pathway they might prefer. So you can prefer a pathway through just because of life or toxins or medications or whatever, but genetically you can also be born with the the variant that makes you choose a pathway. So I have had a few patients who've chosen to get genetic testing. They've realized they have that four pathway, which is the less desirable Mm -hmm. pathway. And so genetically, no matter what they do, their diet talks like they're just always going to prefer that pathway and so i'm like you know in your case assuming the rest of your detoxification Mm -hmm. your intestines your bile your gallbladder your kidneys Mm -hmm. i'm assuming everything's working you might be off and on dim the rest of your life right Mm -hmm. so or if they choose to go on estrogen if if i um menopausal woman chooses Mm -hmm. to go on estrogen therapy and i know they choose this pathway i'm like Let's reduce mm. the risk. You probably will yes. need a little bit of DIM long-term. But Long for the majority term. of people, I agree with you. I find yep. DIM is hard-hitting. It works really well. And our goal, hopefully, doses. is not to have you on it for life if you don't need it.
2: Yeah. Mm. Can I ask a question as well, just while we're on that topic? Yeah. Um, um, I'm interested in that as well because I do quite a bit of um, like genet- the genetics involved in estrogen detox. I do quite a bit mm-hmm. of that testing with my clients as well. So, um again, I'm learning from you because I think you're a superstar in this space. So I'm going to ask, um, I do a lot of dim cycling for those clients. Like, I w- mm-hmm. um, do you think that's an effective way of looking at things as well? Like I might have someone on DIM for like say three to four months and give them a break from it, keep doing all the yeah. diet and lifestyle stuff and then cycle it back in as opposed to having them on long-term. Do you see a benefit low dose longer term versus cycling or it's, you know, either or or?
1: I'm a fan of breaks. So the way that DIM works is it binds to a receptor. It's called yeah. uh, the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. And as we know, receptors can get irritated and annoyed and they can downregulate themselves. So think of yeah. like your arms outside of your sweatshirt. And then when you get really cold, you pull your arms in your sweatshirt. And, and so that nothing's like, hanging out. And it's kind of the same in your cell. You've got arms hanging out of your cell, which is, are your receptors. And they can come back in the cell as well. And when they're in the cell, not on the outside, then you know, you, don't, you can't bind to it. The receptor down-regulates. So if you are on high doses of DIM, theoretically you could, over time, annoy the receptor, and it will downregulate, and now you are are taking DIM, but it's not able to work because it has not not as many receptors to bind to as it used to. So by cycling on Mm. and off, which is kind of the same for any supplement, you know, a lot of Mm. clinicians Mm. feel you really probably shouldn't be on anything forever, or at least not every single day. And thankfully, a lot of people myself included, like we forget, right? We forget <laughs> our supplements or we travel and forgot to bring them with us or it's Sunday and we're like, ah, I'm not going to take it today. Or, you know, like we, we end up inadvertently giving ourselves breaks. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think in that case, it's fine to cycle dim.
0: Yep. Cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So we mentioned, um, a little earlier about these metabolites, these estrogen metabolites we mentioned as far as the metabolism of estrogen. So, we wanted to talk or have you speak to that process firstly of these metabolites and the liver and that process of them moving through phase one, phase two. You did mention mm-hmm. obviously about being made more water soluble, et cetera, but could you explain to our listeners a little bit about that process through phase one, phase two with the liver?
1: Yeah. So most of, as we know, we, hopefully most people know, most of your detoxification goes through the liver. Um, you can Detoxify. Start the process of detoxification of estrogen and other tissues, but the large majority goes through the liver, which means liver health is really important. So we're talking estrogen today, but it also includes, you know, what kind of medications are you taking? How much alcohol are you drinking? How much? How many toxins are in your life, your home, your car, your makeup, your skincare, etc. So from the very beginning, liver health is really important. So as estrogen goes through the liver. Um, again, as I was saying, it goes through this phase one process and it gets, has three pathways it can choose from. So the two pathway is what we consider the better pathway. The four pathway is what we consider the naughty pathway. It's the less desirable. If it, if it really goes down that pathway, the risk for cancer is higher. Then we have what's called the 16 pathway and the 16 pathway makes things grow. So it's great for bones. It reduces the risk of osteoporosis. Not so great for breast tissue, especially if you have breast cancer. Um, I've also seen women who favor the 16 pathway have heavy periods, clots. Uh, they, they, they're the ones who say, oh, I have such full, tender breasts. Every, it hurts. Um, my endometriosis seems to be, you know, a lot worse because that 16 makes things mm-hmm. grow. Um, but again, protective to bones. So it's, it, it's a balance. So once you go through that phase one, um, that pathway, now we have to neutralize you. So when we neutralize you, we use a little enzyme called COMT, or it's also known as COMT. So for those people who are into genetics or studying genetics or have read a book on genetics, it's a very, very common one um, that's easily testable, COMT. Now, the cool thing about COMT is when you, when you use COMT, um, it stands for catecholomethyltransferase, which is a big fancy word, but the last two letters I want to focus on, methyl transferase. It's transferring a methyl onto estrogen and that's what, makes it, uh, that's what makes it neutral. So uses magnesium as a cofactor, which is great because when I'm talking to women about this and we talk about magnesium in their diet or magnesium in their multivitamin or magnesium in their supplement, a lot, a lot of people are very magnesium deficient and don't realize it. They, they don't mm-hmm. eat it, they don't take it. Or they happen to, you know, sweat a lot or excrete a lot and, and they don't replenish what they're actually getting rid of. So it needs, magnesium is the big cofactor there. And once you go through that nifty little enzyme, COMT, now you're neutral. Once you're neutral, I have to make you water soluble because you have to go out in fluids, right? You, I have to, I can't stay in the body forever. We got to get rid of you in a fluid. So now it goes through another process, sounds like a whole factory process <laughs> called sulfation or glucuronidation. So this is why sulfur foods are helpful. Onions, garlic, et cetera, Are give Put those sulfur groups on there and can help clear you out. Now when you get cleared out, you have to go through the kidney or you go through the gallbladder and the intestine. So this is why hydration is important. How much water are you drinking? How are your kidney health? Your salt, salt, potassium, magnesium, mineral intake. This is why your GI tract is important. Do you have gas? Do you have bloating? Do you have constipation? Have you been told you have irritable bowel syndrome? Have you been told you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is known as SIBO? Do you get heartburn? Any of these things can affect the way your estrogens do or don't get out of the body. So it sounds like this crazy complicated process, but as as I was saying, there's like nutrients and cofactors and things that we could use to help along the way, or that we as clinicians evaluate, like, well, how is your intestinal health? Do you even have a gallbladder? Are you getting heartburn? You know, these are questions we're going to ask because you might think we're just thinking about your stomach or your intestines, but we know it applies to everything, including your estrogen.
0: Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant. And I think you just mentioned there, too, um, so well described how also we can have some contributing issues to this process as far as obviously which we'll definitely be getting into with that that gut component. But even things like everyday factors which people would in clinic might be, why are they asking me these questions? I'm here for my like period pain and they're asking me about XYZ but things like caffeine <laughs> yeah. and yeah. But, mm-hmm. but things like caffeine and alcohol um, and stress, which are like three epic Mm-hmm. contributing factors that all of us most likely are um, at points being uh, either bombarded with or, or using at different points so um, there's that and then the other area that you mentioned a little bit there is is, is SNPs so I guess first mm-hmm. to speak to things that are more I um, oh, dare I say common but things that people are more aware of and <laughs> perhaps doing more regularly um Things like, yeah, caffeine intake and alcohol and things like stress. Like, what do we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about how this might be affecting that metabolism through the liver and beyond, let's be honest?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And actually, alcohol is a good one to start with, which only because it's like the big elephant in the room. Nobody wants to talk about it, but we forget (laughs) how... Toxic alcohol can be even one glass, and I, I joke all the time, I say that alcohol, alcohol is a bully, and yeah, she will push agree. her way to the front of the liver, right? And when she pushes her way to the front, that means everything else has to go to the back, including your estrogen, so to speak. So if you are listening to this, and you're like, ooh, I do have a couple glasses of wine every night, or several glasses a week, um, and you're having a lot of Hormonal type symptoms. Your PMS is bad. Maybe you're struggling with fertility. Your endometriosis. You've been told you're, you're growing fibroids. Um, you're getting full tender breasts. Your skin isn't looking that great. Your hair's falling out. Alcohol does play a role in this because it's toxic. The when it gets broken down, it requires again a multi-step process that uses a lot of nutrients, and it it preferentially goes to the liver, pushing estrogen to the back. Now. I will say, at least in the United States, this is, this is the argument that I get. Well, Carrie, I only drink tequila. I drink clean tequila on the rocks because it doesn't affect my blood sugar. It's considered keto, ketogenic, right? <laughs> I do tequila. I'm like, that's great. It doesn't affect your blood sugar. It is 100% affecting your liver, though. Are you serious? <laughs> the other argument I get is that in, in the U.S., we have a lot now, we're, and I'm sure you do too, More um, clean wineries, green wineries. Um, They don't use added sulfates. They don't use pesticides. They're considered they're using organic grapes, um, which is wonderful. I'm I'm you know like big fan. If I'm gonna have a glass of wine, so people say they don't add sugar, carry they don't add all these things. It's organic grapes. It's good for me. I'm like oh, still wine. (laughs) It is still wine at the end of the day yeah it is still alcohol and if if you are having bad hormonal symptoms your periods of mesh ovulation pms whatever really evaluate your alcohol now having said alcohol it anything anything you eat breathe drink swallow goes to the liver so if you find you're taking a lot of over-the-counter pain medications, acetaminophen here, paracetamol, etc., that's going right through the liver. If you're taking, you know, other hard pain, other pain medications, blood pressure medications, cholesterol medications, um, all these medications have to go through the liver for processing. And if you need it, that's fine. Just be aware it is taking its toll on the liver, and and could. Affect estrogen, sort of depending on everything else that's going on. Now that leads me to toxins. We we're talking about you know stress, so let's talk about toxin, environmental stress. So again, all these things in our air, in our water, in our food, in our personal products, um, these these crazy long words we can't pronounce, these food color, these food dyes, um, phthalates, plastics, parabens, etc. They're all what's considered an endocrine disrupting chemical. Hormones are in the endocrine system. Our endocrine system is already disrupted, thank you very much. We don't want it disrupted anymore. So the least amount of chemicals we can have in our life, basically what you can control, I I understand people go, I can't control my air. When I I go to work, I can't control what's around me. I said, but you can control what's in your car, or you can control the makeup you put on your skin. You can control the shampoo that you use. You can control that you've taken all the candles with synthetic fragrance out of your house. You can control the plug-ins to make everything smell good. You can remove those as well. So the things you can control are a win for you. We consider it a win no matter what. So even just these little, um, I'm all about free, cheap, and easy, like these free, cheap, and easy things that you can do help significantly Because then your liver doesn't have to deal with them. And if the liver doesn't have to deal with them, then it can properly deal with your estrogen, which is what we want.
2: Yeah. The other thing too, um, I was going to say just even back on the alcohol side of things is with your estrogen metabolites. And I'm just seeing so much of this in my, with some of my clients at the moment, like obviously our breast cancer risk is increasing and our rates of breast cancer are increasing. Like I've got clients, you know, much younger than menopausal years now Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. with breast cancer. And I've also got a lot of clients that have got a breast cancer risk with moms, aunties and all of that. And when we're looking at alcohol and breast cancer risk, um, and if you're someone who is producing a lot of those more four hydroxy estrogens. There's, I think it's, there's really no safe levels of alcohol that they're saying, isn't it? Like, yeah. it's just, it's a tough mm-hmm. conversation to have um, yeah. because I think, you know, like, like America, like Australia, like everyone does love having a drink and all mm-hmm. of that. But I do have some pretty big conversations with my clients um, around alcohol, especially if they are like, they might be like, I'm not having much to drink, I'm, but I'm just having one glass of wine and I, I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. But like exactly what you said, alcohol does get preference over metabolism in the liver and it is it, it is going to increase yeah. your risk if you're already got if you've already got risk factors. So and we
1: are enzymes that break down alcohol. Unfortunately, especially in females, slow down as we age. So I had when I was younger, I had a lot of women hit 45, 47, 48 and they're like, I can't drink wine anymore, Carrie. Mm. I feel terrible. Like mm. I used to drink wine at an event or a weekend or a wedding, and now when I do, I feel absolutely horrible. And I at the time I'm I'm in my 40s. It, I was in my 30s back then, and I was like, "That sounds awful." <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> sure enough, sure enough. And every single one of my girlfriends in their 40s has said it. Every single one of them mm. has said, "Now when I drink alcohol, I feel terrible." And even though we as clinicians know. Um, and I don't advocate for this, but we just happen to know there are – alcohol's depleting, right? It's depleting of B vitamins. It's depleting of glutathione. And even if we re- take those things, if we take antioxidants when we drink alcohol, if we take electrolytes, it's still not enough. The, the liver is just going through menopause itself, and so it's not going to process alcohol like we used to. So it's going to affect our sleep. It's going to affect our blood sugar. Mm. It's going to affect – all of our hormones, way more than we were in our 30s and for sure in our 20s. Mm-hmm, well, we yeah. could drink anything. Yeah, and I even know, right? then
0: that <laughs> genetic, it's like with uh, speaking to this, the genetic sort of SNP side again, I even think of seeing what I see with clients, but even considering all of that, then your own unique ability <laughs> to mm-hmm. deal with these uh, toxins and i think of even chris the difference between chris and myself i've always joked about how she's got such a stronger more robust liver than myself like i I, I just, you know, I, I kind of sniff alcohol and I've got a hangover. Like it's just, yeah, I, and I know I've done genetic testing. I can I can see that I'm already set up to kind of fail, unfortunately, mm-hmm. when it comes to alcohol and caffeine. Um, so it's yeah. it's kind of interesting to consider, like as you were saying, Kerry, like as we're aging, we're, we we we're coming against some struggles. But then on top of that, if you've got some of these predispositions genetically then it can become yeah. a little tougher and perhaps a, a more of a conversation to have just with yourself about mm. do you really want to be pushing the envelope in that space yeah.
1: and a lot of those women tend to know too just from a, you know we ask questions um how do you do with scents how do you do mm. when you go through a perfume aisle yeah. or when you go down um you know a det- that an aisle with soaps and detergents and lotions and stuff and if it yeah. immediately makes you feel sick or you react or you get itchy or hivy, or, or nauseous or a headache, you know, the, you, you, those scents um, are endocrine disruptors. They are mm-hmm. going in, literally you're breathing them in, going down, they go into your liver and that, that phase one detoxification is struggling. And as a result, that's why you immediately get the adverse reaction that mm. you're getting, the headache or the rash or whatever it is. So, so, those, so when, when we ask those questions, we're not asking for, for fun. <laughs> we're asking because it helps us know, how, you know, at least in that regard, how do you handle alcohol? How do you handle fragrance when you go down the fragrance aisle? How do you handle when you come in contact mm-hmm. with these things? Because right away that gives us feedback as to how you detoxify.
0: Yeah.
1: When I lived um, in
0: Brisbane, we used to live half an hour out of the city. And mm-hmm. when my husband and I would decide occasionally to go into the city for a nice dinner or something of the like um get dressed up and he's loves all these colognes so he'd whack on his colognes and we'd hop in the car yeah. windows up and within like 10 minutes I'd have the windows down with <laughs> just mm-hmm. feeling sick I'd be like oh my god let me out of the car yeah like it just yep. it, and I just yeah it, it's just such a strong uh response every time to those synthetic um endocrine as you say endocrine disruptors yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: although i will say some of those some some of those colognes and perfumes are d- no matter how robust your detox <laughs> are they're just nasty <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> i've definitely been in an, in an uber <laughs> or a lyft and thought oh you have terrible taste <laughs> like this is, this is cheap <laughs> it's cheap it
0: smells like insect
2: repellent yeah what exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Just a short interruption in our amazing podcast with Dr Kerry Jones, it is Christmas, we are officially in December so I just wanted to remind you that my cookbook Eat, which there is a very limited stock of remaining, is a great gift but also has some pretty delicious Christmas recipes. We have in there a divine Christmas cake, gluten and dairy free, a pudding, which is delicious, gluten and dairy free also. And probably one of my favorite Christmas recipes, could be used at any time of the year, let's be honest, is my meringue smash, which is a delicious meringue coated with a coconut cream, loads of berries, a chocolate sauce that you place in the middle of the table, give everyone a spoon and they tuck on in. If you love the sound of that and you would like a copy of EAT, just head to the website, the JCN Clinic website, go to our shop and get your copy today. So let's talk a little bit more, again, we've, we've mentioned a little bit around this, but we're, we've talked about these metabolites um, and you mentioned about the, the difference between the 4-hydroxy, the 16 and the 2, but can we have you speak a little bit more about the, the 4 and the 16 and, and their relationship to some of these more detrimental um, outcomes? So you definitely have mentioned yeah. cancer and even in regards to the um, 8-hydroxy DG, I'm going to call it for short. I don't know how you abbreviate it. <laughs> I'm not attempting the full name.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanazine. I know, who names oh, this thing. I always joke. <laughs> I always joke. If I had to name chemicals and things, I would name it, like, similar to the way they name nail polish. You know, nail polish is always really, these really cute names. That's how I would name yeah. it. <laughs> like Spargle. Um, so, so something, absolutely. So the four, the, if you go down the four pathway, the four pathway is not immediately bad. So if, let's say somebody's listening to this and they have their test in front of them mm-hmm. or they've been told from their practitioner, you go down the four pathway. It's not, it's not doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. The four metabolite, the four metabolite, the problem is if it keeps going. So once it becomes a four estrogen, there are further steps it can take. It can turn into something called a semiquinone with a Q, quinone, and then a full-blown quinone and these quinones cause DNA damage. Now, we don't want DNA damage. We like our DNA. We'd prefer not to have holes and get under attack. But if you have a lot of these quinones, the body, that what, what happens is what we call, um, well, the fancy word is a depurinating addict. Basically, what it means is your DNA, the, they, the, they break out, so to speak. So you get these holes in your DNA because of these quinones. Now, quinones. A hole or two is not a problem. We have an entire DNA repair system, kind of like, you know, a traffic controller that goes around if you break down on the highway or the freeway and can give you a tow or get you gas or pump up your tire. It's the same thing in your body. It'll go around and it'll fix the hole in your DNA. The problem is if you have so many holes and not enough of the repair system or not enough time or space, you're at higher risk for mutation. Because now the repair system is trying to patch all these holes as fast as possible and the risk for mutation occurs. And if you get mutation in your DNA, now it's making something it wasn't supposed to make in the first place. It's making something different. And one of the things you can do is make cancer. And so that's where we get into the risk for cancer. So the four pathways only bad if it continues on all the way to the Q part, the quinone part. Now, your body's really intelligent, thank goodness. So you have two ways to prevent this on that pathway alone. We have two different, um, we've been talking about SNPs that make the enzymes. One is called glutathione, it's GST, glutathione S-transferase. The other is called quinone reductase. And so by supporting our big antioxidants, um, like with glutathione or one of its precursors known as N-acetylcysteine. We're supporting quinone reductase we support quinone reductase with things like um, broccoli sprouts so sprout you know we um you know people will sometimes put sprouts on their salad but turns out it's actually really good for you when it comes to supporting your estrogen and so those two things will help your body not continue on down the q pathway the other really helpful thing to not continue on down that pathway is where we go back into that enzyme I mentioned earlier, COMT, COMPT, um, or the other one, sulfation or glucuronidation. So basically, the more weak as clinicians can do to help you optimize your detoxification, then we'll only neutralize it. So it's not, it's not a death wish to be on the four mm. pathway if you happen to be looking at your, your report. But we know we don't want you to have DNA damage, the increased risk for damage and then mutation, So we're going to do things to either get you off the pathway, divert you, or we're going to do things to um, help um, neutralize you. So we'll like added magnesium as an example is helpful for neutralizing.
0: Yeah, perfect. I think also um, with respect back again to the Dutch test, um, like obviously looking at these metabolites, but the beauty of the Dutch test is you can see so much more. So if you've got, if you've got just say that high, For hydroxy as one thing and everything else looks pretty hunky-dory, like you know, not so when we're not so stressed. We know we've got some work to do, but then when we're Mm -hmm. the the good thing about it is we can look at that, but then we can look at those oat markers and see the glutathione status. So if we can see that that's a problem, and then we've got this DNA damage marker that's a bit high, and we've got like this poor methylation that phase two is looking a little bit um dodgy for lack of a better word like we've we know we've got some serious work to do with this person
1: and i forgot to mention the 8OHDG. so 8 hdg which stands for 8 hydroxy 2 deoxyguanosine, it's um released from d- a dna that's been damaged it's kind of like a white flag for us yeah. as clinicians um or a red flag i guess you would say it's like things are bad so mm-hmm. as that marker starts to increase in your urine, it tells us your DNA is under attack and as a result it's releasing this. And so we need to do something to help protect your DNA. So if you have elevated levels of the four, but your eight O H D G the red flags are really low, whoo. All right. Mm-hmm. This is you just as you said, we have work to do, but it's not a death wish. If the four pathway is high and you have elevated levels of that 80 HDG, a lot of red flags. We have a lot mm. of work to do and we need to figure out what's going on real quick.
0: Mm. And if you, if you see like yourself that 80 HDG high with those other markers, how often do you then consider retesting for that? Like obviously there's there's sort of some time frames that we would usually retest with a Dutch, but I'm just curious um, from your perspective, like as far as knowing how that marker is shifting and changing. So usually when I do any retesting, especially if she is
1: cycling, if it's a cycling female, I give it at least three months because we know it takes um, to make uh, um, your follicles to make, to have a chosen follicle it takes three months from what's called the preantral stage all the way up to the chosen stage. So for cycling females, no matter what, I'm like, it's, we kind of wait three months. Sometimes we'll go six months, depending how much work we're doing and how, many, how your symptoms are improving. So somewhere in that, in that range. Now, the 8-O-HDG increasing, um, it could be worst-case scenario, cancer, of course, but it could be other... Uh, non-cancerous things. You could have had a major toxin exposure. Maybe at work. Maybe I, we've had, um, when I worked at Dutch, like mechanics, painters, mm. landscapers, you know, they're exposed to a lot of um, chemicals. So especially in the summer, when they're really active, people are, they want to paint their house in the summer. They want to they do their yard in the summer. And, and so these, these, uh, these people are exposed to a lot of chemicals and they may find that because of all that exposure, their 8 OHDG markers go up. It's not cancer, but it is affecting their DNA. We had a person who had severe insomnia, severe insomnia. And as a result, because, because insomnia um, and the inappropriate or lack of circadian rhythm is definitely a risk for cancer, um, reduces our melatonin, which is a major antioxidant. Once she started sleeping regularly, her 8-O-HDG dropped down mm-hmm. Wasn't cancer, but it was definitely affecting how her DNA were responding. And so often you will... And in other cases, I'll give you another, like, maybe an easier case. Inflammatory bowel disease. Undiagnosed celiac disease. Mm-hmm. So they're not able to absorb nutrients right. in the first place. So they don't have the antioxidants to help against the DNA damage that's happening. Once they went off gluten in a celiac case, once they, inf- they um, started healing and working on their inflammatory bowel disease, think go Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, now they can start absorbing again. They eat foods and they actually absorb the nutrients, down drops the 8-O-HDG. So it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be cancer. Everyone thinks worst case scenario, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do also recommend if you do see elevated 8-O-HDG, like when was the last time you had some blood work done? Like when was the last time... You've had any screening done? Are you at an age? You should probably check for stuff, have some breast Mm -hmm. imaging, have a colonoscopy, right? Like some of these things, um, you know, have your skin checked. Maybe you should see a dermatologist and make sure there's no skin cancer being missed. Have you had a, you know, a pap exam in a while? Um, So we do make sure that they get their their basic human tests run, Mm -hmm. but also a
0: good history is really helpful. Mm. Yeah, great, great. So, leaving the liver and moving on, um, even though obviously we've got a very in-connected, uh, interconnected um, pathway that we're talking about as we talk about all of these different areas, uh, you mentioned earlier about moving Through excretion, and that you mentioned about bile, and you mentioned about passing Mm -hmm. through the urine. So, essentially, what I'd love you to talk to our listeners about is this concept of what we often refer to as phase three, um, sort of moving beyond (laughs) the liver. Um, So, if you could speak a little bit about that, that would be wonderful.
1: Estrogen. We well, let me back up. So, detoxification. We talk about detoxification and excretion you can get excreted a lot of different ways. You can breathe it out, right? You can sweat it out. You can go out through the kidneys, so you can urinate it out. You can poop it out. There, you, you have different ways. With estrogen, it's very specific, very specific. You either go through the kidneys and urinate it out, or you go through um, the bile, so gallbladder bile, into the intestines, and then out through your bowel movements. So Um, people like saunas and people like to sweat and people like lymphatic movement. And I'm like, that's all great. But with estrogen, it's very particular. Those are the, those are your two different ways. So when we, when we go from the bile, so whether you do or don't have a gallbladder, you still make bile. It's just a, it's just a little different. And then we head into the intestines so you can get rid of it. Now, remember we'd said earlier, you're neutral, And you're water-soluble. So now picture yourself, picture your estrogen in a box, like wrapped up tight, taped up tight with a bow on top. Like your body is done with it. It is shipping it out of, out, right? Like it's got to go. So now it's shipped it out through the intestines and it's floating through your intestines. But because our intestines, we have all sorts of bacteria, we have a microbiome. There are key areas we call the microbiome that deal with estrogen. And it's called the estrogen- microbiome, but we squish the words together and we call it an It's my favorite word to say in science right now, it's the estrogen <laughs> so microbiome, same. right? Isn't it the best? So it's so fun. So it's the bacteria that deal with your, with your, uh, with your estrogen. So if you have an unhealthy estrobilome, then what can happen is that estrobilome makes a lot of scissors. For, or for lack of a better analogy, and those scissors will cut off the bow and it will open up your box of estrogen and allow estrogen to fly free. So now estrogen that was in a box ready to be shipped out of the body, literally, is now free and it gets pulled back into circulation. You just reabsorb it and now it's back in the body wreaking havoc. So now this estrogen that your body is like, I thought I got rid of you. Why are you back? Is causing all your symptoms again, right? So we want to have really healthy microbiome, really healthy intestines, because I don't want all those scissors. I don't want extra scissors or knives floating around opening up my estrogen box. I want it to be able to go all the way through and all the way out. So that's how we did And that's your phase three. That's how we describe I'll your phase it. three. The kidney's are a lot easier because people, you know, staying hydrated, kidney health, urination's easier to understand. Um, uh, we don't realize that we have... A whole lot of bacteria in our intestines that deal with estrogen
0: for good mm-hmm. or for bad. I, oh, I love your analogies. I like Chris and I are, <laughs> are always in love with a good analogy, and um, we that have, that, we have that, that one was just perfect. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. That's it's, it. It's
0: so. And, um, it's I, so funny. You just, oh, sorry, Jess. I was just going to say um, that. Also, that description there was just so perfect for um, with. of our clients when they come to us at JCN we're always talking to them first and foremost even if they're there for hormone related issues we're Mm -hmm. like okay we're going to work on your gut first like we need to make sure your gut is healthy we need to make sure you're not having um, issues in in that area as far as potential reabsorption as you just mentioned like what is that microbiome health like as far as inflammation toxin load we're always you know again 99.9% of the time it's like this is what we need to consider first because if this if this isn't where it needs to be then trying to kind of go forward into your hormones and, and do that now we're kind of putting that kind of cart before the horse so yeah. Um, yeah, I just I, I love I mean, I, I probably would nerd out more on phase three because I'm a gut girl at heart mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm really interested in um, the, the more and more research coming out in regards to the more specifics of the microbiome and, and what um, particular bacteria patterns we're seeing. Um, with that propensity to, I guess, see a heightened—we I mean, didn't mention it—but beta-glucuronidase um, yeah. as maybe the, the the scissors, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm really interested in in the that sort of picture that we're seeing in the research Um, I'm curious if there's there's some standouts that you see I I, I've seen in in literature a fair bit about the firmicutes or firmicutes whatever you want to call them and particularly Mm -hmm. even E. coli a bit around bacteroides Mm -hmm. but yeah curious from your point of view
1: what's even cool now I think it was a 20 last year 2021 maybe this year paper we knew I knew this was coming I just needed research to catch up to it so we talk about the estrobilone, the estrogen microbiome, and and you can't silo estrogen by itself. You can't just, it's not like the intestines has a special track. It's not like at the airport where you can go through, you know, secret security or first class security or, you know, different security lanes um, because you're special. Like we know the intestines deals with all of the hormones, we just happen to be talking about estrogen. So this paper came mm-hmm. out last year or this year, and now they call it the endobolome. So, uh, yeah, the endobolome, the endocrine microbiome. And now they're like, oh, goodness gracious. It took us till right now to figure out our microbiome impacts all of our hormones, mm-hmm. all of them, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, brain neurotransmitter, serotonin, like all of them are affected, and and they've just sort of lumped together all these all the the microbiome together. So as far as like bacteria that I see influence at the most, I will say that I do see. Speaking of E. coli, so those gram-negative bacteria, because they produce the LPS, the mm. lipopolysaccharide, which can be which can be so inflammatory and toxic. And when you get that sort of inflammatory soup or that inflammatory. Um, space in the intestines you are more prone towards making the scissors and that Mm. not only affects estrogen it can affect depending which enzyme lots of your hormones so i have i have people think of our our picos our pcos women with all that testosterone and all that dhea and immediately we might think insulin but knowing the gut plays a role in that as well um is a huge factor that we we have to address. And I, and it's, it's finally nice to see research talking about PCOS and how we have to address, look at the gut and how Mm -hmm. gut inflammation plays a role. And it's not just all about sugar management and birth control pills. Like we, we now know it's, it's much, much broader than that. And so, um, that's what I'm seeing in, in patients, but also in the literature that, gram negative that nasty lps and the effect it has on our hormones from a gut perspective
2: yeah so Mm. true yeah fascinating even just yeah we and because we spend so much time like as jess was saying before like so many clients will come into us and we're like well we've got to spend some time working on your gut before we even get into these hormones but like just even as far as as far as gut testing has come like looking at lps in that and there's some awesome research coming out about you know different compounds in foods and obviously epa and just it's so it's just so nice i guess to to see research coming catching up to the fact that you know there's just so much we can do with our food choices even from an an antioxidant like polyphenol you know, um, you know, good fat point of view that has so much impact and ripple effect on LPS and, you know, bacteria modulation in the gut. But then the, the more downstream of that, which I don't think mainstream public is, or mainstream listeners are getting the grasp on, is the ripple effects of that on our hormones. Like we know it and now we're seeing the yeah. literature catch up, which is so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I just think there's so yeah. much in that gut space that pe- I just want people to really just get their heads around it and just be like, if you eat well and you do all the things that seem so boring <laughs> to everyone that the, yeah. the you know the effects on your hormones and your health long term is just exponential like we can't quantify it i don't think we will for a long period of time yet but it's nice to see you know research catching up
1: even the even things like our circadian rhythm i was at a conference recently and uh um, the godfather of melatonin research. I call him the godfather of melatonin research because he's 86 years old and he's been researching melatonin since like the 1940s or 1950s. His name is Dr. Russ Ryder and I have been following his work for a long time because I love melatonin and he, somebody asked the question about, um, you know, light and dark sun and, you know, sun and moon as it relates to the rest of the body. And he was talking about when we go to bed at night and it's really in our melatonin starts to rise. Melatonin is like the moon. Cortisol is like the sun. So melatonin comes out at night. So he says you have to have a really high, really nice, healthy spike of melatonin at night. And that tells the body, the rest of the body, it's nighttime. Like we can, like things, like the rest of the body is on a circadian rhythm and one of the people in the crowd was like well how 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 does the rest of the body know this and he said well they don't have eyes like your intestines don't have eyes your kidneys don't have eyes your pancreas nothing has eyes to know Mm. like oh right now where i currently am you can't look out my window but it's pitch black (laughs) because you know like it's getting dark out and so he said the spike in melatonin tells the rest of the system hey shh it's bedtime like It's getting dark. It's time to wind down and calm down, including how our intestines do and don't function. So when it comes to hormone health and how we produce hormones, he goes on to say when we have a healthy rhythm, light and dark rhythm, we get up in the morning, we see sunlight or full spectrum light. We have darkness at night. We're off our screens. Um, Then not only does that circadian rhythm help our gut health rhythm, our feeding rhythm. He's like, it helps your reproductive rhythm because our hormones in a cycling woman, um, work on, um, the follow a circadian rhythm. And even with men, I was talking to my friend earlier, you know, sperm production, the average sperm production takes 72 to 80 some days. So let's say just shy of three months, but it's cyclical. Like it follows Mm -hmm. a cycle as well. Like everything we do follows a cycle. And so, you know, you're talking about the way we eat, um, the things with how we choose to eat. And it sounds boring, as you said, and it's totally true. It's boring to get up and, and make sure you get full spectrum light exposure. It's boring to have to get off your phone at night (laughs) or not to have screens or to wear those orange blue light blocking glasses. But the number, how many of your patients and clients where you've said, you know, how's your sleep? Because they're like, oh, I'm so hormonal. I'm so hormonal. I have so many hormone problems. And you're like, well, how's your sleep? And they're like, terrible. Mm. You know, (laughs) are you able, can you fall asleep? No. Do you stay asleep? No. I'm like, all right, we have to start there. It's back Mm. to the
2: basics for us all the time, isn't it? Yeah, Mm -hmm. and I think I think the thing is we don't we don't think it's boring. Like I I love that. I don't either. I know. (laughs) 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 Yeah, we're such nerds. But it's not a magic pill. Everybody wants a magic magic pill. pill. I know, but I even say I spend so much time coaching my clients around sleep. Like I'm I'm actually known as like the satellite dish in in our family. Like I'm up with the sun (laughs) down with the sun. Like even when we go camping, everyone's like great satellite's up. Like I'm up at 4 30 AM as the sun comes up and I'm winding down. (laughs) but um, but yeah. there's so much in that and i was listening to someone actually talk on a podcast again and they were saying exactly the same thing like if you do anything like obviously we are so gut focused and hormone focused and we talk about food and obviously you know what you're talking about endocrine disruptors and low tox living but he was saying and he obviously was right in the melatonin space as well he's like if you can do anything for your health like get up with the sun and get as much of that early morning exposure yeah. and then wind down at night. And I know I mm. talk to my clients about that and they come back three weeks later. And I'm like, have you put this, you know, nighttime routine into place? Oh, sort of, not really. Oh, well, I turned the light out here and just like, this is important. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds boring, but it's really I important.
1: <laughs> I even have, I have a full spectrum light um, because, you know, we're, we're in winter opposite mm. you. And so it's dark in my morning and it's It's Mm. 5 PM here and it's very dark out right now. And so I have a very inexpensive full spectrum light that I just fake it in the morning until the actual sun does come up and, you know, I go out or walk my dog or what have you. But to get that exposure, um, I've had to start doing with, with the change of seasons
0: because I know the benefit. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll, wrap these last two questions together. I'm just aware of your time. Um, So I wanted to finish up talking, we have talked or we have mentioned the gut obviously now, um, and you mentioned right at the start, how you've now moved into these other functional testing realms. So I'd love you to talk about particularly gut testing and its relevance in relation to what we've discussed and um, the information we can pull from that and then optimize our health in this area um obviously using using those types of tests and um obviously you know potentially i know it's a bit of a bigger question but we might even be seeing from dutch testing like it's it it often all kind of comes together in a um sort of a, a package of such as how we might uh, <laughs> we yeah. might move through a treatment but yeah could you speak a little bit particularly to the gut testing its relevance and and how we can move that information into helping our clients
1: yeah. And one of the things I'll start with but with that whole um uh area is that I often refer to the intestinal part. Think of like the sewer line in your house. So mm-hmm. if if your toilets aren't working, if your sink is not working, if your bathtub is backing up, but it's ultimately the sewer line that's clogged, you have to go after the sewer line. I mean you can try all you want to unplug a toilet or unplug a bathtub. Um, unplug a sink. But if, if the true issue is the main line out of the house to the city, that's where you have to start. And in your body, it's the same way. So if you're like, no, I need you just to fix my estrogen. I need you just Mm -hmm. to fix my progesterone. You're staying really high up when really you have to hit that sewer line. If your sewer line has an issue, a crack, a blockage or something's going on, infection, inflammation, then we, that's what we have to fix. So with stool testing, it is exactly what it sounds like for people who don't know. You poop in a cup for science. It's loads of fun. Um, <laughs> but by doing so, what they'll do is that there are a lot of different companies, but they look for good bacteria, bad bacteria. So think of like like um, we hear of probiotics all the time, right? your good bacterias. We look at it looks at postbiotics, which are what your good bacteria then, poop out the other end, which are very helpful. It looks for inflammatory markers. Do you have inflammation? Maybe you do or or are at risk for Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. It looks at things like how is your pancreas able to make enzymes? It looks for worms. It looks for parasites. It looks for candida or yeast. So these stool tests can actually be several pages long and really in-depth as to the inner workings of what's happening in your intestines. Having said that, are these stool tests perfect? They are not, they, I mean, they're, we've come a long way over the years, mm. having been in this space a long time, but I cannot wait as research continues and we learn more how these stool tests continue to um, advance. Mm. But what I do all the time, and I know that you two do as well, is when you get this information if somebody has candida, if somebody has a worm, if somebody does have paris. I just looked at a stool test today of somebody who has um, uh, an autoimmune joint condition and they sent me their stool tests and they have a marker called Campylobacter, C-A-M-P-Y, Campylobacter. And there's research to show that Campylobacter is a trigger for this autoimmune joint condition. And now it's it's probably not the only thing, but I thought, oh, my gosh, Campylobacter. This is a big trigger for this person who's struggling with a lot of joint issue. Let's address this. Um, for somebody um, with, uh, again, like the, the, we talked about what we call gram-negative bacteria. If they're excessive in creating what we call LPS, lipopolysaccharide, which is this crazy thing that's very inflammatory, like we can work on that. If you're not making enough postbiotics or how your probiotics basically poop out the other end, which are helpful for your colon and sound awful, but they're really, really, I mean, it serves a really helpful purpose. We can address that. And and know that research shows your microbiome can shift in 24 hours. Mm. So... If you have fallen off the rails because of the holidays, when you get back on to what you know and feel best at your your meal plan, um, know that within about 24 hours your microbiome is like, oh thank goodness we can go back, <laughs> <laughs> we can so change. It is totally <laughs> modifiable, and that's what's really nice. I mean, I have had patients with long-standing things like eczema or these crazy rashes come to find out they had candida work really hard to address there can one we want to crowd out the bad but we want all the good too i want to repair at mm. the same time it's not just you know drop a drop a bomb it's like we have to it's a process we have to heal the gut um and like their skin gets so much better their autoimmune improves their hair starts growing back their energy returns their brain fog goes away i mean just amazing when i would when i run these stool tests their hormones improve. Like sometimes I don't even mm-hmm. have to do anything for their hormones. Exactly. You know, like exactly. they're like, I had severe PMS. And three months later, I'm like, How's your PMS? They're like, My what? I don't yeah. have that anymore. <laughs> I'm like, hmm. like, Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I forgot about that. How are your headaches? My what? Oh, gosh, I had a headache in a month. You know, I'm like, hmm. So that's yeah. how I, and I want people listening to know that, you know, if you see your GP, They do also have stool testing. If you go to a country Mm. and you drink the water and, you you know, the local water, or maybe you shouldn't, you should have had bottled, and, and then you come home and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm having diarrhea. I went to this country and I probably shouldn't have eaten, drank the water. They'll do a quick... Very superficial stool test. They're just trying to make sure, do you have Giardia? Like, do you you have the bad E. coli, like the real bad E. coli? They're just checking a few markers. And that's different than the stool test we're talking about. The stool test we're talking about is really in-depth, several pages long, looking at a lot of things. Yes, it will check you for E. coli and Giardia. But, man, it will check function. It will check inflammation. It will check enzymes. It will check all these things that you're just not going to get at your GP, which is why I like these tests so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And as you said too, like the the beauty, there's so much that these functional stool tests can give, but the beauty that we often see, um, which is ironic talking through all of these, um, these sort of hormone specifics prior, but we'll often dive in and, and work with the gut and work with reducing inflammation and, and getting that microbiome into a a healthier state, mm-hmm. driving down LPS and a lot of the time females and males are already seeing 100% turnaround in their hormone mm. issues. So mm-hmm. it, it, it again just puts so much more emphasis on why this is such an important area to look at and start with first and I love that analogy of yours of the, yeah. that suri, that block soarage. It's like <laughs> yeah. make unblock this first because everything might be fine once we do this. You may not need to spend X amount of dollars on further testing and, and go down this pathway because you've blocked, you've taken the blockage out. So mm-hmm. yeah. I just, I, I love that with what the, the gut testing space can give us and how it has that beautiful flow through into obviously knowing um, I mean, systemically that the health of the whole body systemically. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think just finally, um, as far as opt- optimization from here like i i feel like you've already mentioned a lot like you talked about people <laughs> thinking about their sleeping their sleeping habits um, you know we've definitely mentioned about about diet and healthy, healthy diet. Carissa mentioned about polyphenols, um, you know, there's fiber. Is there, is there anything else just that you'd like to add as far as how, again, massive question because there's so much can be done, but any (laughs) other sort of major standouts you'd like to mention about how we can, can help? Because I feel like as practitioners too, this is where we get really excited because everything we've talked about Um, sometimes I think maybe even listeners might be like, "Well, my God, there's so much going on, but this is where we can do so much. Like we can, we, we get this information and we can, we can go to town. We, we get like the hands start rubbing and we're like, okay, let's start. (laughs) Let's get you feeling better.
1: Actually, one of the big things and it's, um, really forgotten. So I will end on that note, um, is Mouth health, so oral health, mm-hmm. um, which you wouldn't think your teeth and your gums and your tongue and everything, and like how would that relate to my hormones? I don't understand how that relates to my hormones. But it turns out that you have so much bacteria in your mouth, as you as we should all know, and you swallow how many times a day, which means you swallow all that bacteria down into your intestines. So if you have really, If you've not gone to a dentist in a long time, if you don't brush regularly or floss or tongue scrape and take care of your teeth and your gums, just know that the inflammation and the nasty bacteria in your mouth is getting swallowed down to your gut all the time. The second thing about mouth health is that people have forgotten to chew their food. They think they're a snake and they can just unhinge their jaw and swallow it whole, right? And amazingly, when we chew our food, it helps the digestive process so much. Yes, we have acid in our stomach and we have enzymes in our intestines, but it works so much better when we chew our food. And if you don't chew your food, it does increase and can increase your risk for inflammation, gas, bloating, et cetera, or heartburn. So if you just took a few extra moments and chewed your food, and if you took care of your mouth health, it's like a really simple start to, I don't know where to start to help my gut, my hormones and all these things. Like just chew your food, take care of your teeth because that's the gateway down into the intestines, down into the stomach and down into the intestines. And again, chewing your food will help you just release the nutrients you need even easier, their proteins, etc. So I'm all about Practical and tactical, and I'm mm-hmm. all about free, cheap, and easy. And it is free <laughs> to chew your food, so chew your food. <laughs> and it, you know, you you know, brush your teeth. Like you know, these little things that people and I and we laugh, we laugh. But I I have so many people on social yeah. media who are like, oh God, I haven't been to a dentist in years, or oh wow, I yeah. ran out of floss months ago and I just never bought any, and oh my yeah. gosh, I never chew my food. I'm I'm working. I'm chasing kids. I'm in front of the computer. I'm in my car. I didn't even think about that's why my gas, my bloating, mm-hmm. my heartburn is so bad. I'm like, that's what I'm here for. Don't be a snake. <laughs> chew your food. <laughs> I
2: they think take that away? That
0: don't be a snake. Chew your food. Don't be a snake.
2: <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think the classic one is too, you get an email from your client, they're like, my whole microbiome is not working, everything's, you know, effed and I'm seeing all all these things come through in my poo and I'm not breaking my food down. I'm like, cool, what are you seeing? They tell me and they're like, I'm like, cool, are you chewing your food? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's literally my first question. Are you Mm -hmm. chewing? What are you doing? Oh, actually, no, come to think of it, I've been rushing around. I'm like, cool, let's just spend a week, focus on chewing, slowing down, get back to me. Yep.
1: (laughs) Yep yep and people will argue people will go I do chew I'm like okay two or three times doesn't count as chewing like chew your food you know what we're talking about
0: <laughs> That's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic oh yeah, so uh, look it's just been amazing to have you Carrie like I think Krista and I could probably keep asking you questions for hours on end but we <laughs> we will let you obviously go I would love you to let our listeners know where they can find you that would be amazing Yes,
1: I spend a lot of time on Instagram. I am at dr.carryjones and I have dipped my baby toe into TikTok. I'm at Dr. Carrie Jones, where I do all education on hormones. That's pretty much all I focus on. Uh, and then I do have a website, uh, drcarryjones.com.
2: And I'm you have too, a podcast. Have you have an amazing podcast. I do workout, have a podcast. So, yes, uh, I do have a podcast. The, the, the root, root Cause Medicine, medicine. Podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. Which just started this year. So it's a newer podcast, yeah. but it's been That's a nice. lot of, like, you know, it's been a lot of, lot of fun. It's been great. Yeah. You've had some great, podcast. great people on your podcast. I was so excited. I think I was hanging out years ago for you to do a podcast. I was like, when is she going to do one? And then she <laughs> <"Yes."> <laughs> so, well,
0: yeah, it's, it's been really, it's been, really,
2: it's been really cool.
1: The the company I work for in the United States, um, they're newer to um, our our area of medicine. And so they're like, how do you know so many people? How do you have so many people on (laughs) your podcast? I'm like, because I've been in it a long time. (laughs) Because this space is so fun. Everyone is so nice. So it's easy to talk to people.
0: Mm. Great. No, look, it's it's just been amazing. And uh, honestly, like your ability to deliver information and make it, easy for people to understand is just amazing. It really is amazing. So like, honestly, I I can't thank you enough for coming on again. And to our listeners, um, as as Kerry just um, said, that you can go and find her on any of her socials, reach out. Um, and if you have any questions, um, you can obviously uh, DM her. I'm sure she wouldn't mind or us directly and <laughs> we can help put you in contact. But Yeah, thank you so much. Thank
1: Thank you, you I appreciate both of you having me on. (laughs) Okay, thanks Thanks,
0: everyone. Wow, what a amazing chat that was with Dr. Carrie Jones. We were so pleased to have her with us and Carissa and I could have kept her captive for many hours and asked many more questions (laughs) (laughs) and just generally nerded out with her. So as Kerry said, you can find her on her socials. You can listen to her amazing podcast. And we are just really glad to be able to bring you this episode today. If you have any questions, you know where to find us on our socials. And also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star rating. This helps others find us, which we truly appreciate. Thank you.